Nora, I would estimate there's 8,000 people who are now marching from the capital in San Juan to the governor's mansion, La Fortaleza, which is in old San Juan. Let me tell you, these people, joined by artists like Ricky Martin, Residente, and Bad Bunny, are angry. But this is not just over the chat scandal. It's over what has been decades of mismanagement, misappropriation of funds, their words, not mine. Hurricane Maria was the lowest point for many of these people, and the chat scandal was, as one woman told me, the straw that broke the camel's back. The governor says he's not resigning. The question is, can he stay? given the outcries from tens of thousands of people like this. Manipulación, corrupción, conspiraciones. Ricky renuncia y a tu mente te perdone. Yo no. Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. For those of you who may not know, we are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to analyze global trends and how they're impacting real lives. Today I'm joined with Sarah Rocca, a second year kind of undecided foreign affairs Spanish-ish major. Yes, that's accurate. Um, and we are going to be talking about democracy in some countries in Latin America, how it's developed, and kind of and what the word democracy means in different contexts. It's nice to have you, Sarah. Thanks. It's nice to be here. So, Sarah, how did you first get the idea for this topic? I got the first idea for this when I was working for the Concordia International Summit this past weekend in New York. Um, I had the honor of listening to a few staffers for Juan Guaido, the interim president and leader of the opposition in Venezuela. Uh, and they had a lot of interesting facts that I hadn't realized before, just looking at the global news, that it's the second largest refugee crisis right now and it's closely behind Yemen. And a lot of these people are attributing the refugee crisis and the famine in Venezuela to a, quote, loss of democracy. Without a doubt, the early re-established democracy in Venezuela, the whole continent will benefit. We are living through a dictatorship that threatens, imprisons, and murders. Today, I am the president in the office in this context. However, my commitment is full with the Venezuelan people despite the risks to stop the takeover and achieve a transition in truly free elections and transparency that permits the people to choose a path. And I got to thinking a loss of democracy, what what does that mean for the people of Venezuela? The past few presidents that they've had have been democratically elected, apart from this past election that uh, that's in question. So what does a uh, loss of democracy mean in terms of Latin America, and how do we attack that as a global community? So I know that you want to talk mainly about Venezuela, but before we get there, you were telling me a little bit about Puerto Rico. Can you tell me how that ties in here? Yeah, actually, Puerto Rico is a really interesting case study, especially when you look at the recent governor scandal from this past summer, where Governor Roseo was essentially kicked out of office by protesters in the streets of Puerto Rico. And a lot of news cycles are pointing to this as why democracy works and why democracy should be implemented in third world countries. And it's interesting to look at. Sarah, could you give us a brief little background on what happened in Puerto Rico and why it became so important? Sure. Um, so there were talks about emails and text messages about sexist and racist comments about citizens in Puerto Rico and other government officials. And when the story broke, Governor Roseo said that he would not resign, that he was dedicated to the Puerto Rican people and that he had learned from this mistake. But the people of Puerto Rico didn't exactly agree. They took to the streets immediately and protests continued up until a week when the story broke. Um, and he announced that he wouldn't run for re-election for his party. But that still wasn't satisfactory for the Puerto Rican people. And the protests lasted another week. And it was 24-7 of chants and a wide range of people from many generations holding up signs and 
chanting and running throughout the streets of Puerto Rico. And then on July 24th, about two weeks after the story broke, Governor Rosello announced his resignation, and the people just erupted in celebration in the streets. And now the there's a little bit of controversy for who is next in line for governor, but it's definitely a situation where people got what they wanted because of their right to protest in a democratic state. Uh, so it's interesting to see how that worked out in Puerto Rico. A lot of protests on the Global Inquirer lately. For those of you who didn't hear last week's episode, I advise you to go check it out. We looked at protest culture in Russia. Uh, now it looks like we're looking at protest culture in Puerto Rico. All right. And how did how did Puerto Rico get to this point? It's an interesting road for Puerto Rico in terms of their democracy. Uh, dating back to 2006, when the U.S. Congress voted for tax cuts that did away with a lot of the incentive for manufacturing industry in Puerto Rico, it caused a major economic recession paired with the housing recession in 2008. There's been widespread criticism of the government from the Puerto Rican people, especially since then. And there's been widespread criticism of the government from the Puerto Rican people, especially since 2008. More recently, Hurricane Maria brought devastating loss of homes, streets, schools, and most importantly, the loss of life for many Puerto Ricans. This is the first time in recent history, actually, that people have made a difference in their political machine in Puerto Rico. They've had free elections before, but change was not quite as great as these massive protests that occurred for Governor Rosario. Wow, that's uh, pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, it's definitely astounding to hear um, all those people approach the governor's mansion and to hear just the wide chants that go through the city. And with this large protest came the phrase, quote, you can't do this to us in Puerto Rico, uh, signifying that they're done with the government, uh, treating them like they're less than citizens. And this, quote, is kind of mirrored in Venezuela with the protests going on there. People are saying, you know, uh, to Maduro, you can't do this to us, you can't keep us captive. But it's having the opposite effect. In Venezuela, people are getting kidnapped by the government, getting tortured. A lot of people are getting banned. So we kind of see this divide in Puerto Rico where people are chanting, you can't do this to us, cause change. And then Venezuela, it's making matters worse almost. And I know we've had an episode, a couple of episodes on this in the past, uh, but can you take us very briefly through what actually happened in Venezuela? Jeez, I can't go like five minutes without mentioning a past episode. Just plugging the podcast in the podcast. Yeah, really. Yeah, so just briefly, um, in the late 1990s, President Chavez was elected into office and was pretty well liked by the Venezuelan people, but he didn't make the best financial decisions the bottom line is he relied very heavily on the oil markets, and there was a big crash in 2014, leaving Venezuela in a pretty large economic crisis. And to make matters worse, Chavez died around that same time, and his hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, has instituted a dictatorship since uh, Maduro's death, making government decisions a solely a grab at power for him. So I guess what strikes me is this idea and what you keep talking about is democracy is kind of a cure-all. If democracy got Chavez elected in the first place, is it right to say that democracy would really solve all these problems? That's a really interesting question, and it's something that we could talk for days about. But 
I think democracy as a cure-all isn't exactly the only solution for Venezuela. Of course, Nicolas Maduro, uh, recognized by almost every country except Venezuela itself as the true president for Venezuela, should be in office and the blatant violations of human rights should be condemned. And all of these are short-term things that are pretty obvious once you look at the situation in Venezuela. But an interesting question is, what would stop any future presidents from doing the same thing Maduro has done? Is there any long-term plans to assure the Venezuelan people who are leaving in flocks of tens and thousands that their home country won't be violated again through their government, through their military? I think it's an interesting thing that we need to look at as will democracy bring long-term peace to Venezuela or will it just be this endless cycle of power grabbing? I mean, democracy is kind of often in non-democratic places used as like this idea that if you just simply had a way to usher in democracy, then poverty would fall, quality of life would skyrocket, and everyone would be happy. Um, but as we've seen many times over, this isn't always the case. You look at the Middle East, you look at what happened in Russia after the the fall of communism, where we did try and instill democracy and it failed. Is there an argument to be made that we need a more nuanced approach to how we start to quote unquote fix these countries or bring in kind of the changes we want to see other than just democracy? I think there is. And I think those who would counter that argument would say, well, if you look at Puerto Rico, these people protested and came to the streets and changed their own government, and now they're better off for it. But that's because they've had the long history and institutions to help build up that democracy. In the case of Venezuela, where there's a human rights crisis going on as we're talking, I'm not sure instituting a sophisticated bureaucratic system of democracy is going to solve all of their problems immediately. I think taking a more nuanced approach and thinking of democracy as the end game rather than the immediate solution might help long-term solutions for Venezuela. Yeah, it is It is always hard to kind of just throw democracy on a place, as history would tell. The way democracy has evolved in places like Europe and America was through trial and error and such a natural and not always easy process, but it was something that did happen, you know, without kind of a heavy hand in play. And I think that's kind of where we get lost when we are trying our quote unquote state building uh, in other countries and, you know, something that we have to, as a country, kind of grapple with. Yeah, that's interesting that you say work with a heavy hand. I think another way to ensure a lasting peace in Venezuela is to kind of have a hands-off approach. The people elected Juan Guaido, who seems to have great ideas for how to solve humanitarian crises, and to let them lead themselves in a true democracy rather than the United States hover over them would be an interesting way to ensure that the this doesn't happen again. Right. It is such a fine line between kind of letting a, the course of events play out, but also kind of stepping in uh, and doing the right thing. And it starts to get so blurry when there are different interests in the mix. Of course, we want the human rights violations to stop and would love a democracy to flourish. But you know, sometimes those two ideas can get conflated and uh, lead to some pretty bad outcomes. Absolutely. Uh, another member of the uh, Concordia International Conference was the ambassador for 
Venezuela, and he has worked a lot with Syria and the Middle East, and so majority of his experience is based around that idea of building democracy. And I think while he's certainly has the experience that we've seen in the Middle East that it doesn't always work, so while I think we have a good idea of how complicated it can be, maybe some people in our government are lacking. Yeah, they should start listening to the Global Enquirer. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, sounds like it was an awesome conference. I'm glad you got to go and get some good material for us. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Happy to do it. Thanks so much. And that's all we have for you this week. As always, uh, find us uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts and be sure to interact with us. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought of this week's episode or uh, what you want to hear in the future. Comment, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Next week, we're joined by Ari Kasimian. We're talking about uh, MEK. This was a topic that came up in our earlier episode when we looked at Iran and we found this little niche group Uh, that is trying to usurp the powers that be in Iran, and they have a wild and wacky history, so we're going to delve a little deeper into that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.